scripture today is from Mark, chapter 5, 20 verses, 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And now if you would, just close your Bibles. And listen as Pastor Mark begins the story from his perspective. He's a creature straight from your darkest nightmare, a man possessed by the demonic. He is helpless under their bondage, they drive him to violence. They drive him to cry out like a wild dog, howling in the night. They drive him to solitary places, in the hills and among the tombs. And there he froths about like a rabid animal, living on the ragged outer edges of humanity. Luke reports in his telling of it that it had been a long time since he had worn clothes or lived in a house. There are no houses for men like him in Palestine, no hospitals, no asylums. Like jackals, they are left to roam this no man's land on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Their only refuge are the holes hewn into the hillside used to bury the dead. And there he would seek refuge from the torment among the desiccated corpses and stinking filth of decay living among the dead, aware at least 
that he would join them soon. His hair is matted, tangled of filth, his beard wild and grimy, his flesh deeply gouged and scarred white around his wrists and ankles where manacles once tried to restrain him. His haggard body is gashed with the self-inflicted punishment of stones and knives, his eyes wild and crazed. Barely a vestige of humanity remains. How did this image of God become so marred and so defaced? How did he get to where he is now? How did he end up here, his home a grave, his only companions demons? Was he not once some mother's little boy, loved and prayed over? Was he not once an innocent child playing make-believe and making mud pies and skipping through the streets? Did he not once have brothers and sisters and friends from childhood? And yet now his life has fallen into an abyss where there's no memory of the past and absolutely no hope for the future. Only the never-ending torment of the present, a nightmare of unfettered terror. Somehow, somewhere in times past, the forces of darkness gained a toehold in his life. How? We are not told. But some time long ago, they sought him out like a pack of hungry lions seeking prey. And somewhere, he gave ground, an opening through which they attacked. Slowly, he became a prisoner, and he has been a prisoner ever since. His body is now a beachhead for Satan, and it is on to this beachhead that Jesus now lands. Because Jesus does not limit his miracles or his mission to one side of the lake. He declares God's rule and sows God's grace far and wide. And so he crosses the lake to the region where swine are kept in a daring foray to claim alien turf under enemy occupation. In so doing, he will show there is no place in the world into which the reign of God's kingdom does not intend to extend itself. But every square inch of that invasion will be contested by Satan. As they reach the shore, the disciples are still scratching their heads. They've just witnessed the most remarkable demonstration of sheer unbridled power that they have ever seen. With only three words... Jesus calmed a storm of titanic fury. Little do these men realize they are about to encounter yet another storm. They've just learned that Jesus is master over the natural realm. Now they are about to learn that he's also master over the supernatural. And they will observe firsthand that Jesus can calm a tormented soul as easily as he can calm the raging sea. The disciples dragged their boat up onto dry beach in a, in a region of tombs and pigs, both unclean for the Jew. The mood is ominous and foreboding. In front of them, the steep limestone cliffs jut skyward, but their eyes are not on the scenery. For from one of those cavern tombs rushes a wild man, a raving lunatic, running toward them in maniacal rage. The disciples draw back in fear and retreat, but not Jesus. Jesus stands his ground, 
courageously refusing to yield. And before the demon-driven man gets close, Jesus raises his hand and calls out, Come out of him, you evil spirit. And immediately the violence abates. The wild man throws himself at Jesus' feet. The Greeks did this before their rulers. Slaves did it before their masters. And now the demons do it with fear and trembling before the one they know oh so well. His scream echoes off the stone cliffs. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? There's no confusion about who Jesus is. The religious leaders might debate and the crowds may be divided, but the demons understand with crystal clarity. Swear to God you won't torture us, he shrieks. And Matthew adds an interesting detail in his version. The demons scream, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Evidently, the forces of evil know their day of reckoning is coming. They know they will not always hold sway, but yet they grasp at power and hold it at all costs. Jesus now lifts the veil on the dark forces of the underworld with this question, what is your name? The growling voice bellows its reply, my name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion is about 6,000 men. How many are in this legion, we are not told. But the regiment of evil is formidable. They have been commanded to come out of the man, a command they have yet to obey. And now they plea bargain, anything to avoid being thrown into the abyss of final punishment. Instead, they counter, let us go into the pigs, Banish us, there, banish us there rather than to eternal doom. Jesus grants the request. Go, he commands. And 2,000 pigs on the grassy slopes become host to these wicked parasites. In a frenzy, the crazed swine stampede down the hillside, hurl themselves off the cliffs into the wet jaws of the waiting sea. Meanwhile, the pig herders rush away in the other direction, recording the bizarre story to the people of the town. When they come out to see for themselves, they find the released man, sane and in his right mind. And now they become afraid, not of the demons, but of the deliverer. As intensely as the demons pleaded to go into the pigs, the townspeople plead, for Jesus to leave. What a tragedy. Jesus has, is at their very shore to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to announce the, the arrival of the kingdom of God. He has come to bring a blessing, and they want him to go. Maybe you wonder how many sick in the territory of the Decapolis went unhealed. How many captives went unreleased? How many lives there went unchanged because a herd of swine was considered more valuable than a human soul? Jesus never stays where he is not welcome. He tells his men to get back in the boat and prepare to cast off. 
But now another man begins to plead with him, the man who had been possessed. Wouldn't it be nice to know his name? Some of those who Jesus helped have names we know. Jairus, Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus. But most of his beneficiaries had names never revealed. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. The man born blind. The Roman centurion. The garrison demoniac. The man who had been possessed by demons, Mark calls him. And ditto Luke. And now the man who had just recently been the garrison demoniac begs to go with Jesus. This is unusual. Most always it's Jesus who invites people to come and follow him. It's not the other way around with people begging to follow. But Jesus does an even stranger thing. Jesus says, no, you can't come with me. The man doesn't understand and neither do the disciples. Dedicated followers are really hard to find. And what a trophy he would make journeying together with their little band. And yet this man has refused the opportunity. No, says Jesus, you will stay here. Jesus cannot stay in the region. The people have turned him away, but this man can stay. He can run behind the lines, and run he will. He will start at home, and then he will tell his whole city. And then the ten cities of the whole Decapolis region. He will tell them how his life changed when a storm blew Jesus his way. How on that tattered shore Jesus reached into the most terrifying of tombs to pull out a naked prisoner from the darkness and free him from the clutches of his evil masters. How Jesus had clothed him. For by the time the gawkers arrived, the shame of his nakedness was all covered up and he was in his right mind. And where, by the way, did Jesus get the clothes? And how many times had Jesus specifically asked the recipients of his miracles to avoid mentioning them because he knew the antagonistic notoriety would impede his work and cut short blessings for others. But this time the story had to be told. It was the only way for his work to go forward. And so the garrison demoniac, the one out from whom a legion of demons was cast, told the story of his rescue, of how a lost little boy could be finally reunited with his mom and his brothers and his sisters and his friends. He told the whole world the great things that Jesus had done for him. And Mark adds a little postscript to his account, not found in Matthew or Luke. He says that when he told his story, all the people were amazed. All the people were amazed. So much so, in fact, that when Jesus shows up again in their region, and you can read about it in Mark 7, they welcomed him. And by the time he left, they only had this to say about him. This man does all things well. I chose this story this morning because I want to focus on what Jesus told this man to do. To tell others how much the Lord Jesus had done for him, and the Lord did a lot for him. 
Most of us have not experienced an encounter with Jesus near so dramatic as this man had. Thank heavens. But all of us are recipients of his grace. He has done amazing things for each and every one of us. And we just happen to be today on the doorstep of a holiday set aside for thinking about God's blessings and his providence, the good things that he has lavished upon us. To speak to other people of what the Lord has done for us is an act of worship. And when we do it, we witness to his good character and the work of his kingdom infiltrates places where maybe Jesus himself cannot go. And then sometimes God will do something extraordinary in our lives. Not extraordinary in the sense of grand or, or, or awesome, but something that has his fingerprints all over it. Something by which he reminds us in very practical, very unmistakable ways that he knows us, that he knows what we need, that his intentions toward us are always good, no matter what the circumstances and that he's always near. And when that happens, faith is strengthened. Faith grows. Sometimes when that happens, we just simply must tell other people. We just must. Two weeks ago, that happened to a couple of our friends here in this congregation. And last week, one of them came into my office and said, Do you have a few minutes? I, I must tell you a story and he did. He proceeded to tell me that story. And last Sabbath, I shared the Cliff Notes version of that story with the elders. And every one of them said, the whole church needs to hear that story. And so this morning, they're going to tell it for you. And part of why you're going to hear it is because we hope that it will inspire you to be thinking about what God has done for you. And that maybe some of you would like to share that in a sentence or two next week when we have our special Thanksgiving worship service together, the story of what God has done for you. And so, Michelle in Scotland, please come up. You all know Michelle. She's our school teacher and principal, and you know Scotland. He is not prone to public speaking. He doesn't like to do that. But he had a story that had to be told. Um, two weeks ago, he got news that his grandmother, who had been very, very influential in his life, had passed away. And that meant uh, of quick an emergency trip to California for that funeral. And on that trip, something, something uh, happened to reveal to them that God knows them and knows who they are. And they're going to tell you that. So share with us your story. In Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Sometimes... I think my husband forgets about the last part of that verse. He is a worrier. My problem is more that I get nervous when God asks me to share my faith or time or money with people I don't know. If they're children, I have no problem. But sharing with adults, sorry, <laughs> problem. Well, Scotland took a stress test at school, and I took one a long time ago. And I remember they give you points for anything going on in your life that is stressful. Then you total it up. For example, being married is 50 points. 
The death of a loved one is 63 points, and starting school is 26 points. If you score about 150 points or less, you have low stress. If you score between 150 and 300 points, there is a 50% chance that you are going to have a breakdown in the next two years. If you score over 300 points, there is an 80% chance that you will have a breakdown in the next couple years. He scored over 400 points. The main reason he was stressed, as the pastor said, was that his grandmother had died, and they had been very close. She had even helped raise him. One of his classes was also stressing him out, and once we decided that we really needed to go to his grandmother's memorial service, he had to figure out how to get all of his assignments done. That was another stress. We had to figure out how to get to the memorial service and how much it was going to cost, more stress. Once we decided to drive down, we had to figure out how to do that with our two cats, more stress. We had to figure out how we'd afford the trip, more stress. And then he was asked to write and give the eulogy. He just said no public speaking, yeah. That was very, very stressful. He was already close to that predicted breakdown before we'd even gotten on the trip. We decided to drive down with a borrowed trailer because he'd le been left some of his grandmother's furniture. We had some kind church members who lent us the trailer, tarps, bungee cords, and cinches. And he was able to talk to his professor about, about getting an extension on some of his assignments. And while he was there, she gave him a sympathy card with money in it. In all, we received three sympathy cards with money in it, and we were very thankful because the trip was going to be very expensive despite the money that my father sent to help us out. We decided to bring our newest kitten, Ashling, with us and leave the older cat at home. We had someone to take care of her. We figured she'd enjoy some quiet time alone without the little one chasing her around. So the last stressor was the eulogy, and that one wasn't solved, though, before we left. But I told him I'd help him write it on the way. So Thursday morning rolled around in Scotland and I got on the road shortly after school got out. He had already picked up the trailer and Ashling was lying peacefully in his cat bed. We took turns driving and then it began to get late and I was tired. So at 10 o'clock, I let Scotland take over again and I went in the back for a nap. Uh, at that point, we had, uh, I started driving. <clears throat> And I continued until around midnight or so. And at that point, we were just, um, I don't know if you guys know where Grants Pass is in Oregon. We were just up the mountain, just uh, almost to the peak of Grants Pass. And I heard three dings. Um, and it's usually the sound of like the seatbelt being undone. So I look at the dashboard, I'm like, well, I don't see a seatbelt light. Um, you know, I'm, I'm tugging on it. Okay, well, that's not it. Uh, a few moments later, I hear the three dings again, and I'm looking back at the dashboard. There's, there's no lights on, but then I notice that the heat gauge is off the red on the right-hand side. And so I quickly pull over, and Michelle's awake at this time, and I'm like, uh-oh, we've got a problem. So I jump out of the car, I open the hood, and just billows of steam, just more steam than I've ever seen. It almost encompassed the entire car. Um, so I'm like, oh man, we've, we've just gone through a radiator busting in our other car, so oh, it's gotta be a radiator leak or something like that, because I know nothing about cars. Um, 
So I'm like, well, I keep a, a gallon of water in the car for an emergency. So I'm like, well, if we wait long enough, uh, the engine will cool, and I can put some water in, and maybe we can limp to the next town uh, to see what we can do. So we wait a while. I put some water in. I try to start the engine. It doesn't work. And I realize that not only did we have the overheating problem, but for some reason, I must have missed the gas light coming on because it's below the empty mark. So concave failure there. Um, so we talked for a while and tried to uh, come up with options, and we realized that we'd been paying for this thing with State Farm called Roadside Assistance, um, and through a long conversation with them, we were able to get them to bring us four gallons of gas uh, at around 3 o'clock in the morning, 3.30, something like that. Um, from there, we were able to limp into the Walmart parking lot uh, in Grants Pass, Oregon, and uh, we decided to spend the night there, and then we were going to go ahead and buy some leak sealant or something like that in the morning. So two hours later, it's 6.30, because we didn't get to sleep until about 4.30. Two hours later, at about 6.30, I woke up for three reasons. First of all, sleeping in a Jeep is not very comfortable when you have no padding. And second of all, um, I really needed to trek through the drizzly parking lot to use the Walmart bathroom. And third of all, I got a text because it was snowing here. And as the teacher and the principal, it is my job to figure out what happens with snow days. So I uh, took care of all that, went back to the Jeep, and I just couldn't sleep. I was just lying there, I couldn't sleep. So I uh, decided I would go ahead and get up and drive. First, I went into the Walmart, got the leak stop, and we decided um, that we had decided the night before that we weren't sure how much was leaking out, so I decided I was going to try to drive just a little bit and see how it went. And um, I decided I was going to go over to Subway and grab us some sandwiches before we left. Well, Subway, I guess you could say, was my test on the trip because every other part of this trip was for Scott's benefit. But Subway was for me. Have you ever heard God's voice telling you to do something? And have you ever been too scared or embarrassed to do it? Well, I have on quite a few occasions. And every time I'd not do what he asked, I would be like, okay, I will do better the next time. I'll, I will do what he says. Well, my next time came. As I was ordering our sandwiches, I noticed a man sitting in the booth. He asked about his balance on a gift card. He was dressed very shabbily with shoes two sizes too big, and he looked as though he hadn't showered in a while. I figured he was there in Subway to get warm and dry, and he had used his gift card to buy something, but I'm assuming there must not have been very much left on it because he only had a coffee. As I was glancing at him every now and then, I heard God say, give him money for breakfast. Now, the man hadn't been begging. In fact, he never even made eye contact with me. But I knew he was hungry. God just told me, you know? So I paid for my sandwiches and got $7 in change. And I knew it wasn't much, but it was enough for a sandwich. And that is what God told me to do. So I was going to do it. I walked over to him, asked if he was hungry, and gave him the cash. He thanked me, but even if he hadn't been so eager and grateful, I was just happy I had finally listened and obeyed. So, back to Scotland's compiling stress level. It was about to get worse.
I began driving, but it didn't take long for the Jeep to overheat again. So up until that point, we hadn't been quite sure how much was leaking out, so I hadn't tried the leak stop right away. But we pulled over to the side of the road and waited for the engine to cool and used the leak stop. Didn't help at all. So we limped into the next town, filled up with fuel, and decided we really needed a mechanic to look at it. There happened to be a shop right across the street, so we drove over. The guy wasn't in, there was a sign on the window with his phone number, so Scotland called, and the guy said he wouldn't be back for two hours. Scott was distraught. The man even said it could be something really serious, like perhaps we could have damaged the engine because it had gotten too hot. Once again, he was very upset and worried. This time, he was freaking out that we would lose the Jeep entirely. He does that sometimes. He jumps to the worst possible scenario. Maybe I work with children because I'm a bit childlike, because I have a very simple faith. I'm pretty trusting. I just kept saying, don't worry, we'll figure it out. Besides, God has never let us down. So we decided not to wait for that guy. We filled up the radiator and once again made our way toward the next town, stopping any time the engine got too hot. As we were driving toward Medford, Scotland said, wouldn't it be great if we could find a Jeep dealership? I agreed. I decided to look up where the closest one was. There was one in Medford. First obvious blessing, but Scotland was still a little too stressed to see that then, and he certainly didn't see all the little things that were also blessings used to get us to where we needed to be. We had to stop many times to let the engine cool, but we finally made it there at around 10.30. We pulled in behind the other half dozen cars waiting in the service area, and I stayed in the Jeep with Ashling while Scotland went in to plead our case. So at this point, we've broken down five times, once in the middle of the night, and then four more times trying to limp. We got maybe 10 to 15 miles each time before it would overheat, and I'd hear those three dings. Uh, the last time was within one mile of the Jeep dealership itself, and I kept going, like, please, no, don't break down, don't break down, and then it wouldn't. The stress was just so amazing. I had slept a few hours, that's it. Uh, and so I walked into that Jeep dealership, pouring down rain, I'm disheveled, I haven't slept, I haven't you know, bathed, and it was just all right on me. I approached the desk and I explained the situation to the guy there, Joe, and I said, listen, I have to get to my grandma's funeral in a day and a half, um, or actually it was the very next day, and my car keeps breaking down, can you please help me? Well, the first thing he said was, I'm, just to let you know, we're two weeks backed up. So the earliest we can get someone to look at this is November 14. And I went, please, is there anything you can do just to give me an idea, maybe another place I can take it? And he said, well, you know what? I've been where you've been. What I'm gonna do for you, I'm gonna get my best mechanic just came in. I'm going to get him on this. We'll put you right through, and we'll see what we can do. We'll see if we can't get you to that funeral. So we dragged ourselves and a leashed cat into the Jeep, Jeep dealership and began our long hours of waiting. Once again, we received a small blessing during that time, but we didn't really see it until later. Ashling is four months old, okay? He's a kitten. You know kittens love to play and run around and attack things. He slept under a blanket on our lap for almost seven hours. That's it. Like, he didn't do anything else. 
So at one o'clock, we got some good news. It was the radiator thermostat, which is the cheapest thing to fix, and they had the parts in. At three o'clock, though, we got some bad news. Well, we uh, had figured the good news with the thermostat, we had been told the price, and we were like, well, we can afford that. But then when we got this bad news that they had done a test drive on the Jeep, and so they were going to have to keep figuring out what was going on, we knew that that was going to cost more money. Well, Scotland and I decided to go ahead and work on his grandmother's eulogy. At 4 o'clock, they said they were going to need to flush the heating core to see if that would solve the problem, because we hadn't been getting any Jeep in, uh, heat in the Jeep for um, months. months and months, possibly even a year. Uh, they said they would need to flush the heating uh, core. core because the, the radiator is connected to the heat, you know, in, in your, uh, the heat that you come out of to heat your car, sorry. All of this caused more stress for Scotland as the bill kept getting higher. Me, I was just hungry. So Michelle has to eat every few hours or she feels like she's gonna pass out. And we had been there uh, up to this point. I think we had been there six and a half hours and she hadn't eaten anything but the Subway sandwich at like seven in the morning. So she was really hungry. So I went to Joe and I said, listen, Joe, is there a Taco Bell nearby or something like that that I could walk to um, to get my wife some food? And he said, well, don't worry about that. I'll see if I can find somebody to drive you to one. It's about six minute drive away. And just then uh, one of his mechanics had just come in and said, hey, I'm about to get off shift. I'll take him. No big deal. Awesome, another blessing I didn't notice at the time. So I get in the car with this mechanic. The mechanic's name is Alberto, and uh, he asked me why I'm there as we start to drive. And for some reason, I just unload on him. I just, uh, you know, just start telling him everything about the funeral, about all the stresses I'm under, about the car not getting there, and worried about losing the car, and just the whole nine yards, and about two and a half minutes into this, he stops me while we're driving and he says, you know what, this may sound weird, but I think God has a reason for you being here. And my first thought was, what? This is a random person. Why on earth would they tell me that they think God has a reason for me being here? No one talks about God to strangers. It just doesn't happen. I don't talk to God about, or talk to strangers about God that often. Maybe I should. Um, so anyway, we, we start getting on the, the, we start talking about God and what he can do for our lives. And I find myself just talking about God and, and, and experiencing this with Alberto, and he's talking about what God has done in his life. Well, we get to Taco Bell, and I order what I need, and as I pull out my wallet to pay, I feel this hand on my shoulder, and he just kind of politely pushes me aside and says, don't worry, I've got this for you today. And, you know, I'm overcome, so I start, like, crying, and I'm like, Alberto, I, you know, God is going to bless you for everything that you've done for me, uh, because he just will. This kind of human kindness, you just don't find anymore. It's not a common thing. You expect to get shafted by the system. You don't expect somebody to reach down and take you by the hand kind of thing. So after this, we, uh, we start to drive back. And it'll be six minutes from Taco Bell back to the dealership. And one of the things is we start talking about God and what it means to be a true Christian. 
Alberto and I talk about Christianity not being a label. Christianity isn't Seventh-day Adventism or Protestantism or Catholicism. Christianity is a part of that, but it's not the name itself. Christianity means being a follower of Christ, doing what he told us to do. That is what being a true Christian is. And throughout all of this, I found out that Alberto is actually a non-denominational um, Christian pastor, volunteer pastor. And uh, he, is, he, re he recently wanted to go into it full time and do nothing but that. But then he injured his shoulder at work like two weeks before I got there. And he's like, well, I don't know what God wants me to do because now I have this workman's comp and I can't just go into one without staying here. So he was asking, you know, for me to keep him in prayers. Well, we get back to the dealership and I'm overcome with the urge to pray for him. And I don't, I don't pray publicly with people because my prayers don't sound like prayers that come from the pulpit. My prayers are disjointed. They're, I talk to God like I talk to my father, like when I was a kid. And I don't know if that's right or not, but that's, that's what I do. But I don't share that in public because it's incredibly personal. And I always feel that there's a, a bit of pressure to pray the right way. Um, but I found myself just pouring out to God, Father, be with Alberto. I mean, here I am in all this stress and everything that's going through, and I didn't pray for myself once, I just prayed for Alberto, that God would be with his shoulder, that he would show him his way, that I claim promises in the Bible where two or more are gathered in his name, he is there, and that, you know, because we ask these things in his name, they would be done. And at that point, it was just like everything rushed out of me, and I was calm again, calmer than I had been in days, even though I'm still, I have no idea how all this stuff is going to work. So, I go back inside um, and bring Michelle the food. Do you think God can blind someone momentarily? I think he did. Because as Scotland and Alberto were out praying in the parking lot, Joe came to me and said they had finally found the problem. It was a water pump fan. I think God blinded those mechanics until Scotland had a chance to meet Alberto. I also love God's math. He's so much better at it than we are because his math always revolves around helping other people and giving us blessings. He added months of no heat in the Jeep to a failed thermostat, just the perfect amount of miles, and we ended up in Medford. He used a sympathetic man to reduce a seven-hour day into only three and a half hours of build labor, though perhaps that's all they would have needed if God hadn't blinded them momentarily. And then to top it all off, he used several sympathy cards in Alberto to reduce a $570 bill to zero. How, you ask? So there I was. We were just eating and um, maybe there for a few minutes. And Joe comes over and uh, he tells us all the good news. And then he shows us the final figure, $570. And I'm like, we don't have $570. <laughs> what are we going to do? So... Michelle and I prayed about it, and then a few moments later, Alberto comes back in through a side door, and he motions me over, and I go over to him. He's like, I don't want to offend you, but I think God is telling me to do something for you. And I'm like, well, I'm not offended by anything God's telling you to do. I assumed he was going to give me an email address, maybe start up some Bible studies. Cool, I can do that. What he does instead is he pulls out this 
It's a prepaid card with $500 on it. And he says, I believe God is telling me to give this to you. I got it out two weeks ago without knowing why, but I knew God would let me know when the right time was. So I'm like, I'm floored. I immediately said, no, I can't accept it. And then I felt this thing like, no, you can accept it and you're going to. Um, so I did. And I thanked him and you know, I, I told him that he's definitely going to be blessed. And then I, I went over to Michelle, just dumbfounded, and I told her, and she's like, well, of course, dummy. Because um, she's had the faith the entire time, you know, and, and here I am. I, I mean, I was floored. So I went to go pay the bill, and I pull out this thing, and there's $500 on it, and I'm thinking, well, I still don't know where the rest of it is coming from. Um, I guess we can afford it. So I pull out my wallet, and I look, and the exact amount of cash that we got from the sympathy cards was $70. The exact amount of the bill was $570. Nothing is too hard for God. He had everything worked out before we even decided to go on the trip. So the rest of the trip was easy. Even though I was helping him write the eulogy up until we walked on the platform to give it, and even though we had a tarp start to tear on our trip back and it kept threatening to rain, it didn't matter. We knew God was in control and he could help us choose the right words to say about Scotland's grandmother and he could keep the rain away until we were able to duct tape the holes. And he always did. All God needs is our trust. And anytime Scotland forgets that, I have strict instructions to remind him about a prepaid credit card in his wallet. The balance on it is zero now, but it contains a priceless blessing. And if Scotland is sharing what God has done for him, he won't be focused on himself. Because only God can create beauty from ashes, heroes from broken people, and he will give us joy for weeping. And only God can use a breakdown to prevent a breakdown. I guess probably for me the most the most important thing, or not maybe the most important thing, but the thing that hit me the most about this whole situation wasn't just that God helps us out in times of trouble, because he does, but it was that a week before I even made the decision to go, where I would have a problem, where I would have a breakdown, God had already provided the answer in terms of two sympathy cards and Alberto getting out that thing two weeks prior to me deciding to actually go that way. I mean, how great is our God that he can fix something before we've had the problem to begin with? Not when we ask, but way before we knew we needed to ask. One of the things Alberto asked me to do is to make sure that I tell the story to everyone that I meet, the story that God blessed me. It's not like you're reading it in the review or you're hearing it on Facebook or something like that, though you might at some point. This happened to somebody you guys can actually know. This is God's direct hand of intervention in my life. And I can tell you that it actually, it's real. And it's made me want to tell the story more and more and more. Thank you for your story, Scotland and Michelle. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, it says in your word that because you already gave us your son, it's easy for you to give us all good things. 
And sometimes you just do it in such a way that we know that was you. And it just encourages us. I want to just thank you for the story that Scotland and Michelle told us this morning about how you intervened in their life. I want to ask you to help us to see how you intervene in our own lives more and more, especially as we go into the Thanksgiving week next week. When we come here in a week, we want to be able to come into your house with thanksgiving in our hearts and your goodness on our lips, and we will truly worship you. Thank you for all you have done and that you continue to do and that you promise you will do for us. Big and small, Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.